you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy inspired word to the book of Jonah. We spent quite a time reflecting upon the extravagant grace of God as, as described for us in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and, and contemplating and reflecting on what it looks like to embody Christ uh, in this world. Here in the book of Jonah, we, we come up against a question that is sometimes the, you know, a question that we don't explicitly think about um, but yet is something that does go on within our hearts. And as, that is the question of, well, what do we want for other sinners? Do we want them to, to experience the extravagant grace of God? Not just the nice sinners, but for the really bad ones for those jerks, for those arrogant atheists that are getting right in your faith, right in your face, promoting the most aggressive LGBTQ plus agenda. What do you want for them? It is, a, it is an issue that is in our hearts. It's an issue that was defining for the nation of Israel. And so God provided this, this book of Jonah to help his people reflect upon these heart issues that, that every one of us can struggle with at different times. And so the book of Jonah, uh, as we look through this, it is, it is about us wrestling with the scandalous grace of God. Last week we introduced Jonah looking at the first three verses uh, and connecting it with the end of the book. This morning we're going to look at Jonah chapter 1 as a whole. Now what I've decided to do this morning is, is I'm going to read for you Jonah 1 according to my translation. Um, one of the things that English translations do with the Bible is they like to smooth things out. They want it to be really good, readable English. Uh, but... Ancient texts were not interested in being smooth. They, they were written in such a way so that the emphasis and, and what the writer was really trying to zero in on, they wrote it in such a way that, that you would know that. And so ancient texts tend to read very clumsily, uh, and they tend to repeat certain words over and over. Um, and a lot of times in the English translations, the, the translators will not repeat the same word over and over because they know that English readers, we don't like to read that way. And so they'll, they'll, they'll have, it'll be the same word in the original, but we'll use multiple synonyms in the English. And what happens is that can really cause you to lose the clumsiness that is meant to be there. Also, as we talked about last week, Jonah is written as satire. Uh, it is very purposely being written where everything is described to the extreme for the purpose of making its point. And so what I've done, so, so think about sketch comedy, right? If you've seen like the Carol Burnett show or Saturday Night Live or some of the other, you know, sketch comedies, everything is is um, is to the nth degree, right? Everything is is, is hyperbolic. 
Uh, and it's meant to do that in order to to emphasize what what seems to be absurd for the point of you know being being funny. That is how Jonah is written. So I've, I'm going to read through my translation that I've put together um, to help draw some of that out for you. So don't read along in your in your in your Bibles. I just want you to listen. And, and see if you can see the visual picture um, that is being described here in this first chapter of Jonah. The title of the sermon this morning is, Who Will God Awake from the Stupor of Sin? Yahweh's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son, as follows. Up, walk to Nineveh. That, that great metropolis, and cry out against it because their evil has come up before me. So Jonah got up, but in order to flee from Yahweh's face to Tarshish. He descended to Joppa. He found a ship bound for Tarshish. He paid its fare, and he descended into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from Yahweh's face. Meanwhile, Yahweh hurled a great gale onto the sea. A great storm was whipped up on the sea, and the ship considered breaking apart. The mariners feared, and each one anxiously prayed to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was on the ship to the sea to lighten the ship for themselves. But as for Jonah, he had descended into the bowels of the ship's hold, and there he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The helmsman approached him and said to him, What's your problem, O sleeper? Up! Cry out to your God. Perhaps the God will consider our plight so that we are not destroyed. Then each one said to his shipmate, Come and let us cast lots that we might discover on whose account this disaster has befallen us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They inquired of him, please tell us on whose account this disaster has befallen us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what country do you claim? And to which of its people do you belong? And he responded, I am a Hebrew and Yahweh, the God of heaven, I fear, who fashioned the sea and the dry land. Then the men feared a great fear. And they asked him, well, what have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing Yahweh's face because he had already told them so. So they asked him, what must we do with you so that the sea might settle down for us? For the sea was raging on relentlessly. He replied, pick me up and hurl me to the sea so that the sea might settle down for you. For I realized that on account of that on my account this disaster has befallen you. So the men dug in to return to dry land, but they couldn't do it because the sea raged against them with growing intensity. So they cried out to Yahweh, We beg of you, Yahweh, please don't destroy us on account of this man, nor hold us accountable for innocent blood. For you are Yahweh, just as you pleased, you have done. So they lifted Jonah and hurled him to the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. 
Then the men feared Yahweh with a great fear. They sacrificed a sacrifice to Yahweh, and they vowed vows. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, open our eyes to the things that you would have us see here in this amazing account that that you have caused to be written down for us, your covenant people, that we might use this as a mirror in order to look into our own hearts. For we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything in Jonah 1 is being turned on its head. Every expectation that you have as as you approach this book of prophecy, every expectation is being utterly and completely unmet. And that's happening on purpose in order to get you off balance. Now, Last week we noted that sometimes it's hard to do this with, with a, a book of the Bible that, that you've heard a lot. But as I said last week, most of you, when you think of, of the book of Jonah, the first thing you think of is the big fish. And for many of you, the questions that start coming to mind is, well, can a man actually fall into a big fish and, and survive for that many days you know, down in the depths of the sea, and what happens is you miss the point of what God is wanting you to consider. What God wants you to consider this morning is what Paul is addressing in in Romans, the end of Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, Romans 4. Is there any kind of inherent advantage to being part of the covenant people of God, as if being a member of the covenant means that there is something special about you that makes you different. Because this is exactly what is going on in the nation of Israel at the time in which these events are taking place. And Jonah is serving as a representative for the people as a whole. God is wanting his people to look at themselves by looking at the prophet. That in and of itself is already a surprise because that's not typically how prophetic literature works. Typically the prophet is one who is representing God to the people. And, and so he receives revelation, and, and he discloses that revelation to the people of God. But what is happening here is that Jonah himself is the revelation. What God wants his people to see is what is taking place in Jonah himself so that they can be amused enough by it that they will actually consider that maybe what is true of Jonah is also true of them. This is how satire works. It's meant to be funny. It's meant to kind of get you off balance. 
in order to get you to consider something actually very weighty and very serious. Something that, if, if it was just brought to you in its heaviness, would be something that you might put a stiff arm up there and be like, whoa, whoa, I don't want to deal with all that. That's how satire works. That's its function. And God is using the life of Jonah to help the covenant people look at themselves. We've already noted that that the, the first irony here in Jonah 1 is that God calls Jonah to, to get up and to walk up to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He gets up in order to go down. And, and so and, and, and at the time in which this was being written, Tarshish was as far west as you could go. Tarshish is, is mentioned multiple times in the Old Testament. And Isaiah, it's mentioned as being a place that where, where God was not famous yet. When Jonah is trying to, to get away from Yahweh's face, it's like you and I deciding, I'm not going to listen to God. I'm going to go to Timbuktu. That's as far away as, as he can imagine getting from the face of God and, by extension, getting away from God's words. But you see the irony here now, don't you? Just like the mariners understood the irony. Well, if Yahweh is the one who has fashioned the dry land and the sea, then guess what? You can't get away from them. At the time in which this was being written, most of the ancient Near East functioned according to a territorial understanding of the gods, where they believed that there were certain gods that were tied to certain portions of land. Uh, and so to go outside of that land area would be to go outside the influence of that God. We see this multiple times in the Old Testament, including uh, for, uh, for, Israel, for Israel himself as he was being called to go outside of the promised land to find a bride, and he's like, how do I know that you're going to go with me? Right? A lot of times we pass over that question, but he really is curious. Well, how will you go with me if I go outside of this land? And Yahweh shows him, right, this, this, this image of angels descending and ascending and going out over all the earth. You can't go outside of, of Yahweh's protection is, is what he's showing. We see it in the opposite here. Where Jonah thinks, well, if I can just get to this area where Yahweh isn't really known, then I can get away from Yahweh himself. Now, that bit of irony right there is supposed to hit us because that is pretty silly from a theological perspective, but also from the perspective of the narrative itself. That, that is a ridiculous idea. How can you get away from the presence of the God who has made everything? We're supposed to laugh at this, but we're supposed to laugh of it, at it so that the reality of it actually hits us. You cannot get away from God's 
presence. But everyone in this room has attempted that at some point this past week. You have attempted to keep a little part of yourself, whether it's in your heart, in your head, in your actions, in your intentions, your purposes, your desires. You have all engaged at some point in thinking that you can distance something about yourself from his presence and from his word. Let me put it another way. You sinned this past week. And that's what sinning is. It is the absurdity of thinking that there is something that you can hide from the God who is all-pervasive. Now, a lot of times when we start thinking about that, we want to get real serious. I'm going to white-knuckle this thing. I'm I'm going to take this serious thing on. When there are times where God wants us to laugh at the absurdity. Because it is in laughing at the absurdity that we are, uh, we are put in a position to take a step back, take a deep breath, and refocus our hearts on God himself. When we try to white-knuckle our responses to God, that is another way in which we think that there is something that I can do that is somehow separated from the empowerment of the God who dwells within me. And that, just so you know, in case you weren't, it wasn't clear, that's ridiculous. All right? Quit being dumb. I said that. Um, that was to me. I've said that all week, by the way. <laughs> we cannot escape. And it is absurd to try. Notice, though, that not only can you not escape the God who is all-pervasive, who has made everything and, and who is the one over both the dry land and the sea, notice that, that, that Jonah can't get away from the call. What was Jonah's call? I want you to go to these pagan Gentiles and speak on my behalf to them in order that they will repent. Jonah's like, no way. And as we talked about last week, we know from chapter 4 why he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it because he didn't want God to forgive. Oh, I just knew that you would be compassionate and loving and all that kind of stuff to the Ninevites, and I don't want that. So that's why you know from the beginning. That's why I tried to go to Timbuktu. So he tries to get away from the call of speaking God's word to pagan Gentiles in order for them to repent and what ends up happening. He speaks on behalf of Yahweh to pagan Gentiles on the ship, which results in what? Their repentance and their worship. Even as he is trying to escape not just God's presence, but God's calling on his life, he can't get away from it because God still ends up putting him in a position to fulfill the call that God has for him. Now note that 
When they ask him, did you, note, did you notice that? And I believe it says this in your translations as well, that when they figure out that this is all happening because of Jonah, one of the first questions they ask is, what is your occupation? Now, doesn't that strike you as weird? Well, it's supposed to. It's a weird question to ask somebody that if you think a, a storm has been brought by a god onto, you know, onto the ship as, as some form of judgment, it's a weird question to say, what's your occupation? Right? You would think to say something like, well, what did you do? Notice they didn't ask that. What is your occupation? Well, what is his occupation? He's a prophet. What are prophets supposed to be doing? Speaking on behalf of God. What is he doing? He's asleep. There is, the, the text goes out of its way to describe the actions of God as hurling, right? This hurling of, of a great gale onto the sea so that a, a great tempest is stirred up. All right, very descriptive language. This, this is not a, a nice, quiet, you know, cruise. This is not Jonah's got on board, he's been given his lay, he's got a little drink with an umbrella. These are seasoned mariners. Literally in the Hebrew, they are men of the salt. They are seasoned mariners, and how are they responding to this storm? The Hebrew says they freaked out. They are freaking out so badly that the idea is that they are screaming prayers to any God who will listen. These are seasoned sailors who are scared to death. This is not just some little storm. God has hurled a great tempest into their way. It's so bad that notice the ship in the Hebrew, the ship gets personified. It says in the Hebrew that the ship considered whether or not it should break up. Maybe I should just fall apart. That's how bad it is. You've got sailors freaking out. You've got a ship actually thinking. That's pretty bad. Everything wants to just fall apart into chaos and death. And what is the prophet doing? He is in such a deep sleep that, that he's described as being in a stupor. The prophet, who is the problem, who knows the God that has created the issue, the one person that knows the truth, who has the privilege of speaking in the moment, doesn't care a lick about himself or the people that he is harming. Notice that they have to throw everything overboard. This is cargo. This is wealth. He doesn't care about these people at all. He doesn't care that his presence has just cost them 
their livelihood. He doesn't care that they are about to perish in the chaos and in the death that he's created. He doesn't care. It says, it says when, the, when the helmsman comes up to him and finds him asleep, the, the picture is as if he kicks him and is like, what's your problem? How can you be asleep right now? Don't you care? Everyone else is running around like, with chickens with their heads cut off, praying to any God that will listen, and you are doing nothing. And then they find out, he actually knows the God and that his occupation is to speak on the God's behalf. But for some reason, he has decided to try to escape that God. How many times, beloved, do we interact with people outside of the church, people outside of the covenant community, where we are the only people who know the God whom they need to respond to, where they need to hear his words, where they need to hear about his grace and his hope and his love and his mercy and the fact that he loves to distribute that to sinners who aren't worthy. How many times do we interact with people where that's what they need to hear from us and instead... We want to win an argument with them about the evils of this or that political situation. Where we want to dig in against them about a cultural matter or, or we want to dig in against them about their poor choices and, and that the, 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 the problem that they have is that they are wicked, sinful, sinful people. And that we almost relish the opportunity of telling them that in order to somehow get a little little boost on ourselves, feel a little better about ourselves, as we've just put that sinner in his place. When what that sinner needs is to see the compassionate God before them and to hear his words of compassion. And yes, be called to repent of sin, but called to repent of sin in order to to embrace something that is so amazing. That's not a lot of times how we interact with people. We'd rather win arguments. We'd rather make points. We'd, we'd rather feel superior. And sometimes it's because we might have a little bit of, a, of some jerk in us. That's usually mine, except it's a lot of jerk. Sometimes it's that we emotionally don't like to feel vulnerable and exposed. And so we put up defenses for ourselves, even if it has to hurt the other person in the process. And there is everything in between these two responses. We do this because so often we get more concerned about ourselves than we do about the people around us who are languishing in sin, chaos, and death. But Jonah goes a little step further. Notice that when they ask him, well, will you know Yahweh? What do we do? Notice that Jonah doesn't pray. What does Jonah tell them? Toss me. 
Jonah would still rather die than be a mediator of God's love. They note the hypocrisy. Spiritual apathy. Hypocritical recognition of true doctrine even while in the midst of contradicting that doctrine at every point. Are you seeing us yet? Is this ever something that goes on in in our church? Having all our doctrinal points in a row and yet not able to embody that truth to one another, let alone to those outside the walls? Well, notice that God is not bound by Jonah's disobedience. Because even though Jonah can't escape his presence, and even though Jonah can't escape his calling, notice what happens. God uses Jonah to take these pagan Gentile sailors and put Yahweh in front of them. And their response is that they repent and that they embrace Yahweh and that they, when they are now able to get back to shore, what do they do upon their arrival? They offer sacrifices and they take vows. They are embracing Yahweh, who is the God who has fashioned the dry land and the sea. They are embracing the God whom they see relent of judgment as the problem is dealt with. And as, as, as they, and they respond to the only God of all the gods that they cried out to, who's the only one that heard them? And did something. It was Yahweh. And so they respond to, to this, the bit of revelation that they are getting from Yahweh at this, at this point, And they are acknowledging that he is the true God over all the other gods. And so they embrace him in worship and covenant devotion. All because of a sinful, self-centered spiritually apathetic, hypocritical follower of Yahweh who would rather die than communicate love and peace. Beloved, we can look at Jonah and allow it to be the mirror it is intended to be. Not because we can relax and say, well, you know, Jonah blew it every which way he could, and God still used him, so it's not really important how we live. If that's the message you get from this, then you've got to start over and go back to verse 1. What we are being shown here is that, that the hope of the mission that God has in taking the blessings of the covenant and taking them throughout the globe to every tribe, tongue, and, and, and nation, that he is not dependent on our fidelity to accomplish that purpose, but yet he invites us, even in our infidelities, to participate in what he is doing. Because he has secured the mission 
not through individual prophets who, who may choose to die instead of speaking, but he has secured the mission through the prophet who was the very speaking of God who chose death in order to save sinners from their sin and to call a people into participation in his life, in his worship, and in his devotion. Beloved, let the ironies here, let the the clear uh, picture of, of a buffoon, of a prophet, let that sink in so that you can take seriously your own foibles, so that you can take seriously your own apathy that, that reveals itself at different times in different ways, so that you can embrace your own desire at times to let people perish rather than giving them the word of life, so that you and I can take a step back, chuckle at ourselves about just how stupid we can be, and then once again embrace the grace of God for us in Jesus Christ so that we can renew ourselves in his worship and in, and in his covenant devotion and then go back out into the world knowing that we cannot escape his presence and that his presence empowers us to be the, the words of life to people who are perishing. Words that are embodied in how we live, as well as the words that come forth from our tongues. This is what it means for us to be bound to Jesus Christ by faith and to be those who do not have any kind of special privilege simply because of, of being part of the covenant people, but people who have been made special because Jesus Christ has given us his identity and has given us his new life in order for us to serve as witnesses to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us to, to not take ourselves too seriously, not because we want you know, to just excuse sin or because we don't want to you know, follow you by taking up the cross, but because, Lord, sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves that, that we, we get scared of acknowledging the, the sin that's not only in our actions, but, but the sin that actually resides in our hearts when we interact with, with people that, that we consider difficult, people who are just angry and, and who are aggressive, where we think that we, we just retreat into feeling superior we retreat into thinking that your grace can't overcome that aggression. And so we, would, we, we, we like to argue to win points rather than to manifest your love in attitudes of hope and of words of life. Help us to not take ourselves too seriously 
in our flesh so that we would take ourselves in Christ very seriously and to walk in his grace and to serve in the power and presence of his resurrection. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.